Hello, and welcome to RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. You're probably listening to this conversation on a device powered by Apple or Google. You might share it on a social network like Facebook. Those three companies, along with Amazon, dominate our online experience, and they've come to touch nearly every corner of the real world economy. That's too much power, according to our guest today. Scott Galloway is a marketing professor at New York University and one of the most outspoken critics of these so-called platform companies. He says Google, Facebook, Amazon, and Apple form an oligopoly that is stifling innovation. In his new book, The Four, Galloway says we need a radical approach to regulating the platform companies. We might even need to break them up. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Let me start with an article you wrote this month for Esquire. It was published this month by Esquire magazine. I love the headline, Silicon Valley's tax-avoiding, job-killing, soul-sucking machine. What was the reaction? So it's gotten a decent amount of attention. Uh, the notion that, in general, the worm has turned. Um, you have, whereas a year ago, we were trying to figure out which CEO is more Jesus-like or going to run for president, there's definitely a, a growing gestalt that there's another conversation that needs to take place with these companies. Um, there's some negative externalities involved in these companies that warrant more attention. What do you think the biggest concern should be with respect to these companies? Wow, that's, a, that's actually a good question, and it's an obvious question. I haven't thought about it. So uh, I'd say short-term, the weaponization of platforms to subterfuge our democracies, and it's not just happening in America. It looks like it happened in Britain and in France. Um, so the immediate kind of immediate concern is we need to defend our borders, uh, and not let these incredible companies and assets be that we built and paid for be weaponized by foreign adversaries. And then I think the long term, uh, there's some stuff around or some very important issues around is the business model lead to more polarization of our society because the content is supposed to enrage us and take us to one end or the other where we dislike the other end even more. And the impact on children that this kind of uh, these addictive addictive technologies have that adults can somewhat modulate, but maybe a ten year old boy can't. So there, there's political concerns, uh, medical and, and, and social concerns, and economic concerns. You think yeah. front and center right now is political? It's funny. I just just as I said it, I started thinking: Are those the most serious? Because I'm looking at it through the lens of a a parent, and those are the things at the front of my brain. You could also go you, to- You've got two kids, right? Two kids, seven and ten, so I think about this stuff a lot. But you could also go to, in the last 40 years, new business formation has been cut in half. And if you- Because of these companies? Well, that's the correct question. And the, if you read the Globe and Mail or the New York Times, you think there's new businesses started every day. I believe that, and there's a lot of macro factors, whether it's the housing crisis making people less mobile, student debt, which makes it harder people, for people to start, young people to start companies- but I do believe when you have companies such as Facebook that have a $600 billion market cap and only 24,000 employees, and they're so successful that it's very difficult to get funding for anything in social unless you can position yourself in this kind of thread, this needle of, we don't compete with Facebook, but we'd be a great acquisition by them. It's much harder to get funding. And the few companies that do get funding get a massive amount. So this sort of winner-take-all, fewer and fewer companies with a greater concentration of power, I think is net, net, bad for our economy. 
There's a high rate of startup formation, though, certainly here in Canada, and there's lots of capital uh, around, um, but not a lot of scale scaling up. That's one of the big Canadian concerns. Should we be attributing that challenge or, or that concern to, to these four companies? I'm not as familiar with the Canadian ecosystem, but I know in the U.S. you have two-thirds of the public stocks have gone away. New, As I referenced, new business formation is in serious decline. What you have is, so for example, Facebook has a technology that goes out and registers the popularity of every app, literally every app. And once something starts to get traction, it registers that and it, begin looking, it begins tracking the features such that it can incorporate itself, those features into its own. And then if something kind of gets so much traction, it can't catch up, it acquires it. And you also have a situation where four of the top five apps are owned by one company, Facebook, and they all have their sites squarely aimed on the fifth, Snap. I would describe that as anti-competitive behavior that makes it increasingly difficult for any business who has an app to get out of the crib. Uh, there are examples across all of them. Spotify, do you Spotify? Mm -hmm. I think it's a superior music service to Apple Music. Apple Music is now growing faster in the US, not because it's a better product, but because it's preloaded on the front screen of a billion iOS devices. Apple has a tendency to be slow, giving Spotify the tools they need to create the latest, or latest apps for the most recent iOS platform. And it charges it a 30% tax uh, on Spotify by putting it in the app store. So when you have a gateway or a portal that the majority of the population, in this case, affluent consumers in urban areas that Spotify is targeting, when you start using your portal to send people not to the best place, but to the place that you own, I, you know, I would describe that as monopoly abuse. And I think it's happening everywhere. So yeah, I think, I think it's hurting innovation. Probably like a lot of listeners, I use most of the products that the, the, these companies run and feel my life is better for it. My yeah. life's better through Facebook and Instagram. It's better through Apple, on, on and on. So from a consumer point of view, I kind of sit back and think, where's the harm here? I, I think that's it, a great point. I, it's hard to deny that Amazon hasn't made consumers better off. I love Amazon. It does a great job. The question is- But you want to break it up. I do. The question is, are there companies that we don't miss because they they haven't happened? So try and go raise money to start an e-commerce company right now. It's not easy. And uh, try and you know, try and start a music platform. Try and start an ad tech company when there's a, basically a duopoly soaking up all the power. So you know, we didn't miss TV until we had it. So I think there's a lot of companies that, A, just aren't, aren't getting out of the gates. And then, two... There's a lot of big companies that, while deserve you know deserve disruption, there's probably a level of euthanasia here taking place. You mentioned Amazon. AWS is able to subsidize their retail platform such that if you take into account the cost of delivery, the free video you get, the question is how does one of the largest employers in the nation, retail, survive? You've done some interesting research on how these companies skew uh, or prejudice our consumer choices. Mm -hmm. They put products before us literally on screens yeah. uh, that they or their algorithms seem to prefer. They create the queue, have preferential treatment, if we can call it that, for certain products uh, over others. What are we missing in seeing that? Because I can still choose what I want when I, when I shop on Amazon. I may just not want to click on the first thing that they put forward. So do I not still have choice, even though their algorithm may rank order the choice differently than, than you might? Yeah, but you'll choose 94% of the time one of the first five things presented to you. So yeah, you have the choice, but on Google, you never choose anything off the second page. So I would say, okay, it's like saying you have the choice. You technically 
you could drive to Montreal to see the movie. <laughs> you have that choice, but are you going to? Because when you're on the second page of Google or when Amazon puts you further down in the search listings, you might as well be on Mars. So when companies aggregate this type of power, concentration, and wealth, they almost become somewhat immune to regulation. And in the case of Facebook, when they acquired or wanted to get the acquisition of WhatsApp approved by the EU, again, Commissioner on Competitiveness, they said, well, we're worried about all this data on individuals. You're going to have data on their messaging, on their social activities, where they are. And Europe is more sensitive about people and lists and data than we are. And Facebook's exact words were, it would be impossible for us to share data between the core platform, Facebook, and WhatsApp. And the EU Competitive Commission said, okay, based on that information, we're going to approve the acquisition. They approve it. And then, spoiler alert, 12 weeks later, Facebook figures out a way to share the data. Uh, the, the commission comes back and says, we're going to find $122 million. $122 million is 0.6% of a $19 billion acquisition price. So if you're Mark Zuckerberg and you could take out an insurance policy that cost you 0.6% of the acquisition price, wouldn't you decide to take that insurance policy every time? So I don't think these companies are doing anything wrong. I think they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think they're profit-maximizing companies that are supposed to grow their earnings per share. I think the, the, the guilty party here is the man in the mirror. I think we need to elect officials that'll hold these companies to the same standards we hold other companies. The key to a penalty or a fine or locking someone up is the probability of getting caught times the punishment makes it is a deterrent. In this instance, it's no longer a deterrent for these guys. We're issuing 25 cent parking tickets on meters that cost $100 every hour. So what do you do? You break the law. The counter view in certainly in Washington would be competition will solve this. These four firms are actually trying to put each other out of business to a certain extent. This is not a, an oligopoly in the old fashioned sense. Apple is spooked by Amazon. Google's spooked by uh, Facebook, on and on. Should we not just let the jungle play out here? And it will, you know, Microsoft used to be the, the, the evil one, and now yep. it's way down the ladder. Yep. Uh, because the jungle played uh, as the jungle does. The market. It, it's, a re- it's a really good point. And I, I want to acknowledge up front that when guys like me uh, start whining that companies have become too powerful, it's usually about the time on their own they go into structural decline. So when people got worried about IBM, was about the time they went into structural decline. When people got worried about Walmart, Amazon came along. So you talked about Microsoft. Eventually, they got, eventually someone else came in and disrupted them. In 1999, the DOJ moved in on Microsoft and basically sued them and said, look, you got to stop killing small companies because they saw what happened to Netscape, a superior browser. Microsoft then turned around and used its bundling capability with um, Windows and its influence in the Wintel market to basically make it impossible for Netscape to survive, and it died. So it moved in and said, stop killing small companies. If the DOJ hadn't moved in on Microsoft, I don't think we'd have Google. I think Microsoft would employ the exact same targets, uh, tactics to support Bing. Uh, So I think intervention, regulatory intervention, when companies do what they're supposed to do and use every asset at their disposal, including monopoly-like control, to grow their earnings. Occasionally, we need referees on the field to move in and throw a yellow flag. We did it with Ma Bell. We did it with the railroads. Innovation and tel- telco soared after we broke up the telco guy. So I'm not advocating for restraining these companies. I'm advocating for oxygenating the marketplace and breaking them up. 
The concentration of power and wealth. Look at the t- economic titans of yesteryear. P&G, 100,000 employees, $150 billion market cap. General Motors, I don't know, $60 billion market cap, quarter of a million middle class households. Facebook has $600 billion market cap and 24,000 employees. And I believe that if you'd had Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp, and Messenger as four separate companies, you would have probably 100,000 employees. You'd have a broader tax base. You'd have more M&A. You'd have more hiring. You'd have more full body contact competition. I think Mark Zuckerberg might be worth 35 billion instead of 65, but I think it's kind of a better ecosystem, more competitive markets, better planet with these companies as separate. I think they've just aggregated too much power. They all, you say, you know, they're competing against each other, fair point. They're kind of all bumping up against each other, but they're still mostly in their own swim lanes, mostly. If I said, if I said search, search, phone, retail, and social, you would know who I was talking about. And each of those companies gets sort of 80, 90% of their revenue and 110% of their profits from kind of their core, except for Amazon, which seems to be everywhere now. So yeah, they compete against it, but let's assume they continue to compete against each other. Are we comfortable with four companies aggregating so much power? So far this year, in the S&P 500, three companies are responsible for 50% of the gains. Amazon's responsible for a quarter of the gains of the S&P 500. So is that, you know, Alexa, is this a good thing? So, <laughs> Alexa, is this a good thing? Let's turn to Amazon because you've, you've joked that uh, maybe it's not a joke. Th- this book is entitled The Four. If, th- if there's a sequel, it will be called The One. Yeah. And the one is uh, Amazon. What should we be thinking about when we, all of us, try to understand what Amazon is becoming as the one? So if you look at where Amazon bumps up against the other guys, it's winning. Everywhere it bumps up against Google, it, bump, it bumps up against Google a couple places. One, in media. Amazon Media Group, which no one ever talks about, is now growing faster than Google or Facebook. Where it bumps up against Google and Search, the small but profitable niche of product search, Amazon is growing its share in product search. Where it competes against Apple and computer hardware, you and I were talking about this before, Alexa is much more disruptive and doing better than the than the um, iPods or the Apple Apple Watch, where it bumps up against Apple in streaming video. It's gaining share in streaming video. It's just, it seems everywhere it's competing in voice. It is literally kicking the butt of, of Apple Siri. So what should we be thinking about? One, I think, I think Amazon's about to become the most valuable company in the world. And by the way, I own their stock. And I said they were going to be the most valuable company in the world when they were at $200 billion. They're now at 700 I think they're going to a trillion. I think they're going to be our first trillion-dollar company. I think the thing to be thinking about with Amazon, from a consumer perspective, what's not to love? Uh, from an investor perspective, I think the stock's going up. From a company perspective, I'd be thinking about, and it depends what industry you're in, but I'd be one thinking about what does it mean when a third of all computing is done without a screen? What does it mean for my company when people increasingly make purchase decisions and ex, uh, kind of consumer exploration via voice? What does it mean for me as a company? And then I think there are broader questions around what does it mean when one company becomes, starts sucking all the oxygen out of the room, has access to the most capital, can make speculative investments no other company can make, can show up with 38 gallons of gasoline to everyone you have because it has access to cheap capital in any sector. You know, what does it mean for the tax base? What does it mean for hiring? Since the Great Recession, Walmart has paid $64 billion in corporate income tax. Amazon has paid one4 because Amazon runs a break-even because we have decided to replace profits with vision and growth. And more power to them, but if the most successful company in the world, which I would argue is Amazon right now, doesn't pay any taxes, what does that mean? Well, it's pretty straightforward. The less successful companies have to pay more taxes. So just as 
In the U.S., public policy hasn't kept up with an aging America, and we give people Social Security at 65 when everyone used to die at 58. Public policy or taxation policy hasn't kept up with the innovators, and that is Amazon has figured out a way to reduce all leakage to the government and pay no taxes. And this is despite, so they've paid 140th the taxes of Walmart, and this is despite the fact that in the last 30 months, they've added the value of Walmart to their market capitalization. It's interesting you use the uh, gallons of uh, gasoline uh, analogy because using the cliche that data is the new oil, Amazon's a data company. And that, I would argue, is how they are beating the others. They are just amazingly good at data. Yeah. They've got better AI. Obviously, the, the, yeah. the cloud computing bet was, uh, yeah. was genius. And they're reaping the, uh, the dividends from that. But it raises a question among the questions it raises is how should we regulate or think about data? Yeah. How do we price it? And how do we police it? It's an interesting thought. So I want to go back to what you said originally, that data is, the, data is, the, uh, is oil, and you hear that a lot. I would argue data is oil, but only if oil was trading at $1 a barrel, because the finite resource of the value add is in refining. So RBC, probably on a lot of levels, has as much data as Amazon. What Amazon's been able to do is refine the data and figure out a way that it serves you a product page that's customized to you. What's hard to find is people that can take the data and figure out a way to translate it into some sort of consumer value proposition. And that's what Amazon's genius at. I find the companies I work with have a lot of data. What they don't have is people and products and the vision and product uh, teams to figure out a way to turn that data into some sort of tangible incremental improvement in product. Now, to your point around pricing data, I think it's an interesting idea that every consumer would own their data and rent it or sell it out. And you'd say, okay, Facebook, if you want my data, you're going to have to pay me. There might be a lot of innovation that comes our way in terms of micropayments. I think about it more as avoiding advertising, that every time you go online, you might be able to say, you know what, I'd just rather not have advertising today, so charge me 28 cents, which is about what I think all, all online advertising gets in a good day if you're, if you're on all day, 24 hours. I guess it would be a way of transferring shareholder value or value back to the end consumer would be a way of making the product less expensive. I just don't think these companies are going to let us do it. Among the additional challenges and differences between oil and data is that oil is pretty much a, a finite resource and depletes as you extract it. Data accretes. The more right. data I give Amazon, the more data it gets. It multiplies. And actually the value, but what we as consumers haven't really figured out is the accretive value of that data yep. that their algorithms are able to generate are all going to Amazon now, not to the consumer. Now, I suppose they would say, actually, it is going back to the consumer through lower prices, better service. And that's what better data allows them to cut, cut their prices. But ultimately, I wonder, is there going to be some sort of consumer, I don't want to say backlash, but uh, consumer demand uh, from these companies for better value or is this as good as it gets and we'll just all keep rolling along with it? I don't think the revolution is going to be consumer-led. Uh, consumers get so much value from these companies. They're so busy. And consumers are generally, there's a certain amount of dissonance between outrage and what people actually do. So people complain about supply chain ethics and retail, and they want a little black dress for nine ninety nine. And so short of them doing something, I mean, Look, these platforms were weaponized by Russia. We know that now. Subterfuge 
our democratic process. And I don't think Facebook usage has gone down yeah. since the election. Yeah. I think it's, I mean, Facebook, the core platform is struggling with new users, but I think Instagram and WhatsApp and Messenger are as strong as ever. We talk about monopoly power. You also need to talk about monopsony power, and that is the suppliers here, the advertisers, really don't have any choice but to use them. I think PNG is probably horrified. Yeah, this is the folks at PNG are these salt of the earth, smart, Midwestern, Cincinnati, very American company. I would think they're horrified by what happened to Facebook. They don't have any choice but to advertise on Facebook. Whereas if Facebook, if there were kind of eight platforms, I think a way of competing might be we've put in place security such that you can ensure that no foreign adversary weaponizes the platform to, to kind of wreak havoc here. So the, obviously these problems get pretty pretty complicated uh, pretty fast. But I think on balance, 11 companies versus four, uh, I think it's a better world. If there is a counter-revolution, where, where will it come from? The argument is, is really strong not to break them up, and that is capitalism works really well. Competition works really well. These are our innovators. You have big competitors overseas in China. The last thing we want to do is, is hamstring our winners and our rock stars. These cycles tend to correct themselves. Someone comes along, some kid in a dorm at McGill or at MIT figures out a way to do something these guys aren't prepared for. So competition, competition and consumer benefit rule the day. And to a certain extent, that's what's happened, and that's what antitrust law is based on. If it's good for the consumer, we're going to leave it alone. Uh, so you know, it's not even the counter-revolution. It's just the revolution doesn't happen. It may, it may be over before the first shot is fired. I actually think it's probably going to happen. I think it's going to come out of Europe. They're already talking about something sort of similar to what you're talking about. They're putting regulations on you can't use someone's sexual preference their religion, and something else to target them or where they live even maybe. And it ends up that a, a crazy amount of advertising takes those things into account. And so Facebook has a team, a really large team of people trying to figure out what's going to happen to their business and how do they get around it when the EU implements this regulation. So it's really more privacy than renting out your data, but it's coming. So I, I was fascinated to hear uh, Macron, the French president, uh, Davos, and he, he was quite clear that change is coming. France will lead it if, uh, if necessary, but they seem uh, ready to challenge the American behemoth. They said it's just unacceptable to large populations around the world to have companies of this size paying so little tax, creating so few jobs, and uh, taking such a large share with the market and, uh, and wealth. So that, to me, seemed like a pretty clear signal that uh, they're going to have to solve the problem or a France-led EU will come after them. And we've seen over the years what China has done, which is to create its own model. And I wonder if we need to think about a possible deglobalization of the platforms. And will we see, I don't know if you call it a continentalization, but sort of the emergence of regional, hemispheric, whatever you want to call them, yeah. platforms rather than global platforms? It's an interesting point. So the, the, the society that adopted that was China. I mean, China's model was let them in here long enough just to educate the market about the benefits of search and social, steal their IP. And let's be honest, it was IP theft. And by the, by the way, I'm not being indignant about it. The Americans stole the IP of Europeans manufacturing and textile. Uh, but they've done it very effectively in technology and then prop up a local entrepreneur and capture the value domestically. So they've sort of regionalized tech. 
I think there's a lot of benefits to scale. I think the the scale these guys have benefits. I just wonder if if there's a way to figure out to redistribute some of the proceeds more equitably. So, I mean, the first first and foremost, companies shouldn't be able to avoid taxes. If they're getting a ton of revenue out of France, there's got to be a way. And you already see it. These companies do all kinds of gymnastics because they're so powerful and so thoughtful and smart and aggressive in terms of regulatory um, kind of prophylactically going after regulation. Amazon has 77 full-time lobbyists in Washington. Apple licenses their IP for the brand, thereby suppressing the profits in the U.S. and massively inflating the profits in what's called Apple International, where I think they pay an effective tax of like 7%. Those gymnastics, those holes need to be plugged. We have this sort of love. I mean, uh, you know, this is, this is an analogy that gets people riled up, but in, in America, we are going through a very serious debate around gun control. And where it stems from is that we have this affection for the American maverick, gunslinger, hunter, trapper, stand your ground, the American revolutionary that will not let its government descend into tyranny by letting us take, you know, no one can take away our guns. We also in America have this massive affection at a, of a core American ideal, and that's the innovator, the young, ruthless, fearless innovator who's so creative and driven and create something just amazing, usually with technology, that we've decided that these people, similar to guns, are a protected class. So the same way gun companies aren't subject to the same product liability as any other product, we've decided these companies aren't subject to the same scrutiny. But you've suggested this is the year where the worm will turn if it, uh, if it hasn't. How do you think that's going to play out? Uh, I think that the worm has turned. I think it's been a death by a thousand cuts, but the kind of the stabbing was the weaponization of Facebook. And then the inability to cauterize the problem with a series of tone-deaf, half-denial responses. I think Facebook's response to the issue is going to go down as one of the, a textbook case study on how not to handle a crisis. I think that is probably the turning point, and I think you're going to see some sort of regulation or taxation. I don't think it's going to come out of D.C. I think it's going to come out of Brussels where they register all the downside but a fraction of the upside, or you're going to see it come from an attorney general in a red state. You know, Kansas hasn't, Kansans love Google, but Kansas hasn't benefited a lot from Google. The newspapers, the radio stations, their ad agencies have all come under the same pressure as every other media company, and Google isn't building any university hospital wings or recruiting from the University of Kansas. So red state, AG, but most likely regulation or taxation comes out of Europe. So we sit here in Canada watching this with uh, with interest, fascination, and and often a desire to to extract some of the benefits that these countries are generating. The example that uh, springs to mind is the competition for Amazon's HQ2, the second yeah. headquarters. Toronto's made the short list, the only non-American city on on the on the short list. A lot of debate here about is this ultimately good for Canada? Is it good for Toronto? How do you think non-American countries should be thinking about working with the American platforms? So I think you have to serve your own economic interests and ensure that you're getting a, a decent deal. And I think it varies by country if you, uh, you know, what the deal is, if you will. But like at the end of the day, these companies are remarkably innovative. And just, to, just as Mercedes sort of transfers value from the rest of the world to Germany and then to Stuttgart, these four vessels, Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google, have transferred trillions of dollars in wealth from the rest of the world to the U.S. and then from the U.S. to the coasts. 
Now, with respect to HQ2, I believe this is an example of, of how kind of queered the market has become and how perverse our society has become because I think the decision's already been made, and I think this is a big ruse to mature a crazy, generous term sheet based on a frenzy pitch competition that results in irrational terms that will ultimately be bad for taxpayers. So, you know, I would I was hopeful that the mayors were all going to get together, hold hands, and say, "Look, we'll compete on human capital. We'll compete on who offers the best, the the best students, the best infrastructure." But we're not going to just drop our drawers and just start throwing money at it because all you're doing, if 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 Austin offers another billion dollars, all they're basically doing is taking a billion dollars out of the tax coffers if they choose Toronto. Because any city that Amazon goes to is going to have to match the best price. Toronto, great universities, attracts young people, a great quality of life, international airports, a, a budding tech community, and you have absolutely no chance. There's absolutely no chance Amazon is going to come here. Why is that? The biggest threat to Amazon right now is not competition. It's not being disrupted. The biggest threat to Amazon right now is regulation. And there is no way that, Am- that Jeff Bezos is going to take a chit the size of, of Mars called putting the second headquarters in a domain that has no representatives in Congress. That would be wasting the chit. So I think Toronto's actually got less chance than any city on the map. Who has the best chance? Uh, the exact opposite, D.C. If you locate, and if you'll notice, three of the 20 finalists are all in the D.C. metro area because they're not going to regulate the, lo- the local kids. So number one is D.C. I would say number two is New York because what people fail to realize is that these companies are run by humans. He gets to make the decision. I've been on a lot of public and private company boards. Whenever the idea of HQ comes up, you'll find out that the decision was made based on where the CEO wanted to spend more time. A 53-year-old man worth $105 billion is not going to spend three months a year in Indianapolis. They have absolutely no choice, no chance, no chance. He has homes in New York and he has homes in D.C., which means the headquarters, which means he likes it there, means he already has a toothbrush there, which means the headquarters are going to be in New York or D.C. And the dark horse is Miami because anyone who lives in Seattle probably likes the idea of spending three months a year in Miami. Toronto, no chance. And it's ter- I, think it's, I, think it's, I think it's a travesty. They're wasting your time and your energy. You've got two children. I think they're eight, eight and 10 years old. When yep. you think about them as adults 20 years from now, yep. what sort of tech world do you think they'll live in? What sort of platform world? I have no idea do you 20 think they'll years live in? out. I mean, the, the two technologies I feel comfortable saying will be much bigger and more important in our lives in three to five years are messaging and voice. I think those are underinvested. I think those are going to be transformative, figuring out a way to communicate with consumers via texting. Texting is still an area of trust. You don't I collected my mail for the first time yesterday in three months. I don't trust anything that comes in my mail. It's neither important nor meaningful. So I don't trust mail at all. No trust whatsoever. I don't trust my phone anymore. If someone calls me on my phone and it's a number I don't recognize, I don't answer it. And if it's anyone else, I'm pissed off and think that they're old and stupid for actually trying to call me. So I don't trust my phone anymore. The only place I still trust is my text messaging. I read all of my messages. I don't read all my email. I sort of trust my email. I probably read one of three emails. So messaging is kind of the last medium of trust, as far as I can tell, where someone can, where someone can reach me. So I think that's a huge opportunity for companies to figure out a way to, get, to communicate with the consumers via messaging. And then the second thing is voice. I think voice is just transformative. Some things that won't work. Virtual reality, ridiculous, stupid. People don't want to put anything foreign on their head that doesn't make them look cooler. 
you just out yourself with someone who's never kissed a girl when you put on a virtual reality house. You just look stupid. Uh, you, know, you can pay a thousand bucks to feel nauseous and look like an idiot. That's the value proposition there. AR, uh, augmented reality, there's probably some interesting things. Hold up your phone to an apartment building, see what's released and what it costs. That's, there's some potential there. 3D printing, ridiculous. Um, internet things, vastly overhyped. Uh, and I'm still trying to figure out the blockchain. That might, th- that's feeling like it's a little bit overhyped, but we'll see. But the two in technologies, if I was coming out of college and thinking about things I really want to understand and be the, the, that guy or gal at a company, I'd want to be the voice gal. Oh, she gets voice. I think that's a good rap. Voice is a thing. Well, I'll wrap up with uh, a comment you often uh, conclude with, which is the world is a better place. Yeah. Life, life is better today than, than, than ever. How do you balance that or how do you square that view with a lot of the uh, concerns that you've raised in this sure. sort of conversation? Uh, so I have a tendency to look, have a very Western view and a US-centric view where I'm looking at the, the impact of technology on Europe and the US. But if you zoom out and you look at the world, any income inequality actually between nations is actually declining. The number of kids this year that will die from infectious diseases has never been lower. The likelihood that you or and I will die at the hands of another human being has never been lower. More girls are going to college than ever before globally. So life expectancy is going up in most nations. By the way, it's gone down in the U.S. two years in a row. But if you zoom out and you look at the planet, perspective is a photographic term, meaning how you zoom in or zoom out. When you have more perspective than I do, I usually look at tech and its impact on the U.S. and Europe. When you look at the world and you zoom out, yeah, it's a great time to be alive. Best time in the history of mankind until tomorrow when that will be the best. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Peter Henderson. You can reach us at rbcdisruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. Thanks so much for listening. Listening.